passion is more important than intellect. Don't ask yourself, am I smart enough? But ask yourself, am I interested enough? Welcome to episode 43 of The Future of Work, the podcast that looks at every aspect of work in the future. It's brought to you by Wanda for their blog, Chaos and Rocket Fuel. We release two podcasts a month, featuring industry experts and thought leaders discussing how work is changing and evolving. You could say that the future of work is now. I'm Doug Folks, and this week with Wanda CEO Claire Haydar, we catch up with Natalie Marquez-Courtney, an award-winning writer and photographer who loves getting inspired by creative people and how they work. She writes and shoots stories for Ireland's leading publications, including the Irish Times, Irish Independent, Image and Irish Tatler, and her photography work has been published in a wide variety of national and international publications, including the New York Times and The Guardian. Natalie is also a self-confessed tech nerd, and when not shooting or writing, she can usually be found on a beach in her new hometown of Galway in the west of Ireland. Today we'll find out how Natalie's Mexican birthplace, growing up in a circus and her eventual move to Ireland all shaped her outlook on work today. We'll delve into imposter syndrome and see how it affects both men and women, and why visual storytelling is a critical skill for the future. But first, Claire. Natty, the reason why we really wanted to bring you onto the podcast today was because you are one of those human beings that have really just successfully been able to evolve and change your own skill set to match what the market needs, but also very much what you personally need to actually just grow in your career. And I think that is one of the critical skill sets um, in this new world of work that we find ourselves in. And so starting off, you've tried on many careers and you've actually come back full circle to where you started and what your passion is. If you were to explain yourself in a Venn diagram, what would it look like? Um, it's so funny you say Venn diagram because I don't know if you know this, but I am. Um, I have a tattoo on my arm that actually looks like three Venn diagram circles. I think even though they all seem really disconnected and they all seem all the you know all the different things I've been lucky enough to work on do seem quite disconnected and almost at opposite ends of the scale. Um, for me, it's the same thing draws me in over and over and over, and that's usually people and curiosity, just being curious about something, um, and that has served me. Um, so well in terms of just like, you know, honouring the kind of work that I want to do. You know, sometimes I felt terrible imposter syndrome entering a new industry or talking about a topic that I knew nothing about or learning about a topic I knew nothing about um, and felt daunted by everything I didn't know. But knowing that it was something I was genuinely curious about and being interested in the people working in that space just helped me overcome those fears and sort of pushed through and I've had this posted on my desk and I think I had it on my desk when I was working with you as well and it was um, a quote from Professor Aidan Moran who was one of my lecturers in UCD um, here in Dublin and he was a sports psychologist um, and I was lucky enough to get to interview him as part of my job years later and we were talking about you know career advice for, for teenagers and he gave me this tip and he said um, and I'm paraphrasing probably terribly you know passion is more important than intellect don't ask yourself am I smart enough but ask yourself am I interested enough 
And that's for me become like my litmus test. Like I literally have it on the post-it of every company I've ever worked at. Whenever I kind of feel doubts about whether I'm doing the right thing, it's, am I curious about this? Am I interested in it? And if I am, I know that I will do the work to get to the level I need to get to in order to, um, you know, to feel I'm, I'm doing well in this particular field. And I strive and I don't always succeed, but I try really hard to approach things with a if it's not a hell yes, then it's a no mentality, you know, and if it, if it excites me and puts a bit of fire in my belly, I will just chase that little rabbit down that hole and kind of see where it takes me. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And I think it definitely looks a bit like I've come full circle, but I feel like it's sort of full circle with quite a few tweaks, if that makes any sense. And a lot of the work I do is very similar to the work I did maybe four or five years ago. And a lot of it is, you know, is very, very different. Or at the very least, I feel I look at it with a different perspective, having worked at a few at a few different places. Just so much, so much in what you've just shared there with us. And just to answer your question, yes, I do know about the Venn diagram and the tattoo. That's exactly why it's the opening question. <laughs> love it, love it. Natalie, I'm going to jump in nice and early and say uh, hello. Nice to meet you. Hello, Doug. How are you? Quite often when you know, we sort of ask for a little bit of background and a little bit of you know your childhood, it's sort of very much you know much of the same the same <laughs> but you were raised in a circus so i'm really excited to ask you to just share some of those earliest memories about the circus and obviously how that sort of played out and applied to you as you grew older and even now as in your everyday work environment yes well i mean i need to i need to add the caveat that the um you know i have very little to do with my my cool circus history uh, because the joke of the family is that i ran away from the circus as opposed to people who <laughs> ran away with the circus um you know i was very much the nerd my head and books the first to go to college but um i'm like immensely proud of it and um one of my earliest memories, my father's family have a trapeze background um, and we were in Mexico and my earliest memories is training for the trapeze. And he was, I think it might have been four or five and he was the catcher and getting strapped into the harness and holding the bars and having that kind of chalky rosin in my hands. And, you know, my uncles were trapeze artists, my cousins were training. So, you know, it was scary you're up very high but at the same time there was this real sense of feeling connected and, and continuing to do with you know what your family had been doing and yeah that's that's one of my my earliest circus memories and to answer the second part of your question I mean I feel like I use what I learned in the circus almost every single day and in many ways it's not too different from somebody who grew up in a family business you know this idea of everybody mucking in and doing what it takes to get it done whether it's working in a grocer's or a B&B or you know it's the same kind of mentality I think that kind of show must go on mentality and I credit that with getting me through every single stressful magazine press week every single deadline that felt unmeetable you know just that sense of rolling with the punches mucking in figuring it out as you went along I think that has stood to me probably the best and it's one of the skills I lean on the most. And, you know, I think of all the things that have gone wrong and you know, everything that you could imagine could go wrong in the circus has gone wrong. The wind has blown down the tent. Animals have gotten out. Somebody has gotten injured. The clown's gone missing, you know, and the show still goes on. It just and that really genuinely is a, is a true thing that circus people have in their core. No matter what, the show will go on. So, yeah, that that has stood by me very, very well. Natalie, I, that, it's so true what you said, because I mean, I saw that when you worked with us in those very early days. I mean, you came into the company and it was literally just like a raw idea that Tracy and I put down on the table in front of you. And we said, Natalie, 
we don't know where this is going to go. We don't know where it's going to evolve to. And but we need you to build the base of it. And I think I didn't realize that at the time, but now that you've just said what you've said, I think you literally did that. You saw it as a production that needed definition, you know, and you brought the players in and and you put that production together. And it didn't turn out how any of us expected it to. But the interesting thing is, is that that work that you did in that early phase is actually something that we're now bringing to customers. The market is now ready for it and we're moving forward with it. And we wouldn't be able to do that if it wasn't for that early work that you did with your circus experience. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. That's so wonderful to hear. Thank you. But yeah, I mean, that's what it was. You know, you and Tracy had your tickets. You had your popcorn and candy floss and, you know, I had to make it happen. That's sort of how it goes. Before we move forward, I think in, in time to get more relevant to the future of work, you mentioned there about being in Mexico, which I believe is where you were born. How does the Mexican side, obviously you're living in Dublin now, the Irish side, how's, how does that all play out into your identity today? It's an interesting one. I don't have nearly enough understanding of, of my own history. Um, so yeah, I was born in Mexico um, to a Mexican father and an Irish mother. And around the age of six or seven or so, we returned to Ireland um, when my parents split up. And to a certain extent, that kind of severed a lot of my ties with, with Mexico. Um, I did study Spanish in university as part of my degree, but I don't speak it very well now and I haven't gone back to Mexico I found over the years that I can I can cook and I love cooking Mexican food and it has proved the best way to bring back some of those memories from early childhood. Like, you know, the first time I tasted tacos in Ireland as an adult, it just transported me back to like my abuela's house and running down the streets and, you know, with a tea towel stuffed with tortillas from the bakery. And the food and flavours and smells have been the easiest way for me to connect with with Mexico. But that's about it. And since my son was born and he's carrying um, both my my husband and mine's surname, so he's carrying my my Mexican surname. And I felt a stronger pull to try and more deeply understand that part of my ethnicity. And like I've always dreamed of going back to not just to visit Mexico itself, but, you know, road tripping around the US. I have so many extended Mexican family members dotted around the US. And Luckily, because of sort of the circus connections, lots of cousins have come and gone. But it's definitely, I think, something I haven't connected with as strongly as as I would like. Natalie, you've travelled as a photographer to Gaza to document a circus training event. Tell us a little bit about that project, given that Gaza is as fraught as what it is right now. And specifically how creativity teaches and prepares youth for their future careers. I'd love to. That was an that was an incredible trip. Um, I mean, circus, no matter where you are in the world, is all about silliness and fun and bringing joy and bringing wonder and genuinely about connecting people. And I, you know, I, I feel it's so important when helping communities like the residents of Gaza that we focus like not just on the much needed humanitarian support and not just on documenting the challenges, which is so, so important, but also on giving visibility to the communities, to the potential for fun and joy and creativity and and the right of every child to that joy and to play, you know, and as I've had my son, I've, you know, I've learned more and more about the importance of play and deep play. And as a photographer traveling there, I actually felt as that it was as important that I document that um, because that is also what is under threat, that you document the smiles and the laughter and 
the training was such a respite for so many of the, the kids who participated and, you know, seeing Henrik, who was the clown who was with us, you know, just juggle and the ball would hit him, hit him on the head. And that kind of slapstick comedy is universal. You know, you don't need to speak each other's language to get the fun and the humour of that. And I think there's just something oh, so magical and, and so deep about being able to connect on that level without speaking each other's language or knowing each other's history. And I think circus does that, you know, and, you know, Henrik, one of the, the collaborators on, on the project, he's part of Clowns Without Borders and, you know, he's travelled all over the world doing this. And yeah, it's just the right, the right to joy and the right to play. And that's kind of, that's kind of what it's all about, I think. It's so true what you're saying is that play is such an essential ingredient in the skill set that people require to be successful in their work today. Turning to a, a little bit more of a serious topic, but also still this whole, I mean, if you look at each of these questions that we're going through here together, it's we're talking about very real skills that people need in today's world of work. You've started a project called the Imposter Project. Um, this is, it's a big topic that you're diving into here. And it's something that I know that, that you've grappled with. You've even mentioned it here to us. Share with us a little bit about the project, but more importantly, I think I'd like you to share with us about why this is an issue, um, especially in work settings today, and what can individuals do about it? The project itself is a, a tiny bit dormant at the moment as it's um, it's a collaborative project, a little side project between me and two other very talented humans, Cleo Meldon and Daniel Morgan. And we all have a lot of life going on, but at its core, it's a documentation project centred around imposter syndrome with an aim. Our goal was to profile inspiring women that we admired, that we thought were, God, aren't they amazing? Look how, look, how, look, look what they're doing and talking to them about you know, how they experience, handle and own their imposter syndrome. And almost most importantly, and this is what really kind of came out of it, that we were most surprised and delighted by how they harness it to help them create great work. You know, it started out as just like, you know, let's just give visibility to imposter syndrome. Let's just talk about it. But actually through each of the interviews, more and more it became like, wow, they they really harnessed this. This, this really helped them push through. So it started out, I was very, very lucky in my career to spend a long time working in a predominantly female space, working in, you know, lifestyle magazine publishing. And obviously, like any workspace was not without its challenges. But for the most part, I felt supported, accepted, encouraged by my colleagues, by my editors, you know, felt like a very safe, very familiar space. And so when I stepped away from that and I entered the world of tech, um, specifically SaaS and software development, you know, very traditionally male spaces, uh, it was a really eye-opening experience for me. Um, and although I loved technology and I was so curious about it all, I was completely new to the industry and just constantly dealing with just tiny, subtle, often unconscious signs, you know, not deliberate signs that these spaces were not intended for me, that I was not meant to be here, that, you know, and it was really challenging. Um, and, you know, it was actually like in the middle of a particularly bad day when I really felt like, God, I'm such a fraud. I'm not meant to be here. I'm not good enough for this. You know, any minute now, someone's going to walk up to my desk and go, we're really sorry. It hasn't worked out. You know, take your complimentary coffee and please leave. Um, and that day, you know, I, I, I registered the domain like on my lunch break and was like, I just I need to do something about this. And I discovered that women and, you know, it does affect men as well. But the original research was done on women and it does seem to predominantly affect women in all kinds of careers, regardless of how 
successful society perceived them to be had harboured fears about being found out, um, like, you know, feeling like their accomplishments were a fluke. I think Meryl Streep is one of the most famous quotes about, you know, feeling someone's going to walk up to her and ask her to leave. And so it was very important for us to to just give it visibility. And, you know, we were in a way, one of the reasons I think the project has sort of stalled was because when we started it, it really felt like there wasn't a lot of discussion and conversation around it. And in, in the years since, it feels like there has been. And I think that's amazing. And that's kind of all... I was hoping for was that I would like to see more conversations about this in the world. I would like to see more people feel like it's okay to say I was scared going into this or I didn't feel like I was good enough. But actually I pushed through and that's yeah, that's kind of where that's at at the moment. I'm just going to take a short break to mention our sponsors, Wanda and Pattern. At Wanda, they teach you how to work smarter using tools that enhance collaboration and identify unnecessary barriers breaking legacy behaviours before they destroy your team's professional productivity and personal health. Pattern is their new product that identifies trends across multiple platforms. Email, calendars, tasks, video conferencing, workflow management, and it combines them to help each team member learn and grow as individuals, as leaders, and in comparison to their peers in the marketplace overall. You can check them both out at wonder.com. That's WNDYR.com. And lastly, just before we rejoin Claire and Michael, if you are finding this podcast of value, please follow us on your platform of choice. Remember, we have new content published twice a month. Naki, I don't know if you can even remember that we had this conversation, but when it was just an idea in your mind before you had actually even put any piece of work out there for the first time, you actually came and you spoke to me about it. And... I went after that conversation that we had and I went and I actually researched it for the first time ever in my life. Like I, I knew what it was. I, you know, with my psychology background, I'd, I'd studied imposter syndrome at university, but I'd actually never looked at the real data, um, you know, and the research that has been done around it. And I was stunned at how many people struggle with this. And as you said, it is really skewed towards women and it's an issue that really needs addressing. And I remember walking away from reading the data and actually being very grateful that you were starting the project because it's one of those things that, like a lot of things, it, it kind of takes that one person to highlight it for the first time for it to become a thing and for it to become spoken about. But yeah, it's, it is, it's a frightening thing that a lot of people in work today are struggling with. Absolutely. Especially as people, you know, diversify and they might be taking their skills to new environments or to new industries. And that's where it tends to strike the worst, you know. Um, and yeah, it is just I think even just to be aware that that it happens, just to be aware that, that everybody feels that way, I think is sometimes all you need to be able to walk into that room and feel like, OK, this is it's OK for me to feel like this. I can honestly share with you that post having that conversation with you, um, it definitely changed the way I manage people in that I now come into meetings and I come into, you know, team all hands, for example, with that tucked into the back of my head to go, you know, there could be some people in this room right now in the Zoom space, you know, in this online meeting that are struggling with this right now. And there's a responsibility on managers to be aware of that and to realize that there's a critical need for it to be 
not necessarily brought to light, but to be managed in a very particular way. Absolutely. And actually, that's such a good point. Like, it's so important for managers and and, and C-level people who might feel very comfortable in the role, they're very confident in the role, or maybe it's their company, to realize that people they're working with, who they trust, who they think are phenomenal, who, who they pick specifically because they think, you know, you can do this thing, this is why you're here, are feeling not good enough or feeling that they're not delivering. And it's I think it's particularly now with remote work, you know, mentorship has suffered so much for that. Um, and, and a lot of people would be suffering alone. You won't pick up the cues that you might have picked up that somebody might not be feeling like they're bringing their A game. And so that that kind of encouragement and that support and just that little reminder that you are here for a reason, you're doing a great job. You know, it can just count for so much. It's quite interesting because so often we hear, you know, fake it till you make it. But you're very, it's very much a case of don't fake it, but make it. Absolutely. And that, that's so funny. That was actually like one of the tags of the project was don't fake it, still make it. It is OK. You know, and like the fake it till you make it thing has its place. It absolutely had its place. And it has definitely gotten me through some nervy moments. But at the same time, I think it is also OK to be a little bit vulnerable and to be open about the fact that, okay, you feel out of your comfort zone in this space, or even just to know that others have come before you and also felt this way. I'd assume that you can't fake it if you're a trapeze artist, but I'll move on. (laughs) No, there is no faking it as a trapeze artist. (laughs) Unless you've got a huge net. You just go down straight to the net. (laughs) Okay, so let's just move, let's move the conversation on a little bit. So we've spoken a lot about a lot of the skills, a lot of things you're involved in. What other individual skills have you had to master to to build the thriving career for yourself that Claire alluded to earlier in the podcast? Yes. So as a freelancer, I've been working as an independent freelancer. Well, I'm an independent freelancer now and I've been working remotely on and off since around 2015. And a lot of the time I've been working on deliverables based projects as opposed to, you know, time based projects where someone is paying me to be somewhere for a set amount of time. It's somebody has hired me to do this specific work by this specific date. And for me, structure has been hugely important. And like my initial perception of freelance life was the opposite. You know, it was working whenever, wherever that like Instagram hashtag digital nomad fever dream. But for me, that actually just turns into working like everywhere, always, you know, and I really need and I think this is an important skill that anybody who works remotely uh, needs to have, you know, to create a sense of rhythm and structure to your week and to your day. And ironically, once I have that and once things are kind of mapped out, that's when I feel the freest and that's when I feel that, you know, I am in control of my day. That was a big sort of, that was a steep learning curve for me, was realising that I still need the structure, even though I am working for myself, making my own hours. And the other one is an independent freelancer. Uh, cash flow was a very steep learning curve, as, you know, especially working as a as an editorial photographer and, you know, one who I predominantly like to work with small independent brands. And so every publication, every company has, you know, has different payment systems and just really realising what I need to do in order to kind of manage my cash flow and to feel on top of things was 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 a big was a big learning curve as well. That's interesting. Those are probably two of the biggest things that I find for myself working for my own small little company. So although I'm not really necessarily a freelancer, but yeah, certainly cash flow and and having structure. If you can get that right, it frees you up to actually enjoy what you're doing rather than panic about the end of the month coming around. <laughs> 
Exactly. It's ironic because it really is sort of, it sounds like, it sounds like the things you're trying to get away from, you know, you're trying to get away from the sense of like, oh, nine to five, clocking in, clocking out. But actually having that little bit of structure and that rhythm to the day makes you feel, what I find makes you feel more free. Mm. And the interesting thing is like, there's only ever been like a a two-year stint in my life where I've worked as as a true freelancer. But if I think about this is startup number four for me. And if I think about every single startup that I've been involved in, those were the two things, cash flow and structure, that were the foundational pieces to actually being able to get the company to a point where it grew beyond me in the very early days and grew into that first initial team. And then beyond that, the foundations of actually being able to scale it um, to a point where it's not dependent on me anymore. So interesting it spans both the entrepreneurial journey and the freelance journey yes absolutely and if you want to hop from one to the other that if you've already developed those skills you know you'll be able to just sort of extend them if you decide to you know to launch a project or a company while you were working with us in the very early days of wonder yourself ivan our designer at the time who you brought in and lisa talia all worked on that project for us around the future work skills, you know, and that research between what essentially differentiates man from a machine or woman from a machine in the context of work. And visual storytelling, we identified in that research that you guys did with Lisa at the time, that visual storytelling was one of the most critical skills in the future, but also right now, particularly in this remote world that we're currently functioning in. It's something that I believe from having worked with you, but also having observed your career as it's grown beyond the time that we worked together, that's it's something that you do extremely well. Would you agree with that statement? And what I'd also like to hear from you is, do you agree that it is a critical skill that people should have? And I'd really like us to make this applicable to the average knowledge worker who spends anywhere from eight to 12 hours a day sitting behind a computer screen. How does visual storytelling not only become a critical skill set to enhance their careers, grow their personal careers, but also make them better at what they do? Yes. I mean, yeah, I definitely consider myself a very, a very visual person. Um, if I ent- if I spend a long time not working with, you know, with visual projects, I, I feel like a withering flower. You know, I, I definitely get quite down if I don't do it. But I do also really believe that we are all very creative visual people and it's all about looking in and looking out. So inputs, first, I think inputs are hugely important, you know, not just in work, but in life. So refreshing your inputs if you feel stuck, you know, the things you read, the visuals you engage with is like flushing your brain with beautiful new information and allowing your brain to make those glorious random connections that really differentiate us from from machines at the end of the day. You know, whether it's deciding to walk to a different beach or visit an exhibition or read a beautiful coffee table book, you know, whenever I feel stayed or stuck, it's usually because I'm engaging with the same type of content over and over and over and, and, you know, expecting it to affect me differently. And for, you know, if anybody wants to infuse their workday with more visual creativity, I think you need to learn to notice more and, you know, learn how to see the world through your eyes and and with your heart, you know, and photo prompts are like an amazing, easy, simple and 
completely free way to do that. You know, just small, accessible, visual challenges that you can work into your day that will encourage you to to notice more of the world around you. Um, I did a course a few years ago called Photo Meditations um, and you can find lots of different prompts online. Like sometimes they're seasonal, sometimes they're themed. But this one that I did and loved, uh, one of the first prompts was to take a picture of everything that I stood on that day, everything my feet touched that day, just using my phone camera, you know, no fancy equipment. And just doing that really simple exercise got me thinking about all kinds of things. So what grounds me, where I'm standing, where I'm feeling happy, where I'm standing, where I'm feeling stressed, you know, what my shoe choices tell me about the life I'm living and what my mood is and what I'm doing. And I think prompts like those help us notice more. They help us tune into the day better. And I think ultimately will lead us to naturally find ways to infuse our work with more visual storytelling and, you know, to find opportunities in whatever kind of work you do to to make it more visual and to to feel more, you know, more effective of you. Natalie, you've just emphasised just how deeply you are embedded in, in arts and the creative industry. But I also know that you, someone who calls yourself a work nerd, you love tech and you love gadgets. What would you say are the top skills that creatives are going to need to master fast in order to thrive in this new working reality that we find ourselves in? That's an amazing question. Um, I, th- I think for, for people working in creative industries, it will be about holding on to the skills you already have developed as much as anything else, you know. So in a world of constant interruptions, protecting your flow, your ability to like dig deep into the work is going to become more and more important. You know, I often think of um, someone who is, say, a potter or a ceramic artist and how quickly and dramatically their work would suffer if every time they sat down with a lump of clay to throw at the wheel, their phone pinged and they stopped to look at it. And like my work is not that hands on, but uh, I think the effect, things going wobbly and quickly losing their shape um, is basically the same, you know. And similarly, holding on to the drive to do the work for the love of the work and the love of the process and its ability to help you share what's inside of you instead of, say, worrying about what kind of art is being celebrated on Instagram or what's selling well. That's really challenging and that's going to be something that is going to become more and more important to hold on to because, you know, we're living in a world that more and more values authenticity and values individuality. And yet you see a lot of the times, especially in the visual or creative world, you know, things start getting more and more familiar and similar. And then finally, and this is completely practically coming at, you know, coming out of my, as a photographer, as an editor who works with a lot of craftspeople who want to reach a wider audience or who want their art to be to be seen by more people, taking the time to share and photograph your work um, is absolutely key. Um, and, you know, it comes back to that, you know, that that point about all of us just being visual people. And, you know, as a magazine editor working in Ireland, we have an incredible heritage of, of creative crafts, people making beautiful work. But so often the images I would get would, you know, would just not do the work justice. And, and especially now, you know, we're missing the you know, that lovely tactile sense of going in and picking something up and, and having a feel of it. You need the image to do that more and more now. And I think a lot of businesses are understanding the importance of, of having, you know, strong, engaging imagery. And a lot of independent creatives are also realising how important it is to to document their work and not just their work, to document their process. You know, if someone's making something from scratch, it's, it's important for you 
to know that, to know that this has been made by this human and what's this person's story and why do they make things the way they make things. And that's the beauty of, of creative work. And I think it's really lovely when you get to see that, when you know, when you visit someone's website and you get to see, well, this is my studio and these are my materials and all of that kind of under the hoodness, all of that, you know, kind of how the sausage gets made-ness that you don't think is as, as pretty or as polished as the final piece is actually just as important. And it's what draws me to buy things, you know, when I when I see how it's made and how much they cared about the materials and the time they took to make it. And, you know, documenting that, I think, is going to become more and more important. It's an interesting point, actually, because from in my life as a, as a videographer, you know, the, the creative side is on taking the images but also then obviously on the editing. And where I'm going with this is to, in essence, you're saying to be proud to show your work. Now that may be for an experienced creative is is all part of the game, but do you think it's something to be said about, you know, people new into the field might feel like almost like they're, they're bragging or showing off or trying to, you know, sort of push themselves too far forward or too quickly? Where is, is, there, a, is there a line there to draw? I think a lot of the time, especially with photography and videography and stuff, there can be a lot of, uh, funny enough, imposter syndrome about sharing, about sharing work and sharing projects. And the thing that um, I love reading and coming at it from is this perspective of this is what I did and this is what I learned, you know. And if you're sharing what you learned, like you're never showing off, you know, you really are just, you know, you really are just opening up the process for other people and helping them get something from what you do. And it doesn't matter if you are, you know, Annie Leibowitz's assistant or if you are just starting out with a Polaroid camera, just being open about, I was working on this project and here is what I learned. And if you come at it from that place, I think you will both be able to share what you're proud of, but there'll also be the sense of humility and openness. And, you know, someone might leave a comment and say, oh, actually, did you know you could use this tool to do that? And and, and then your, your journey will continue. And especially with photography and videography, you know, you were never done. This is a lifelong, you know, this is lifelong learning we're doing here. We're never really going to feel like we've truly mastered it, I don't think. Can you maybe give some advice to somebody who is a frontline worker in a hospital or who is sitting in the admin back end department down some forgotten hallway in a hospital building, you know, having to churn out invoices on a daily basis as their job. How do they bring visual storytelling into their job? Yes, this is, this is a beautiful question. And it reminds me um, actually of this little, um, this little activity I set up for my son. So he's three. And he loves looking through things. He has, you know, a little toddler camera and we got him a magnifying glass and he has these coloured paddles and he has this little bug viewer. And I was reading a beautiful post explaining why it's so important for, for children to have these tools and what, what these tools teach them. And it explained that tools like magnifying glasses or kaleidoscopes show children that there are different ways of viewing the world and that the way we see it every day isn't the way everything is um, and that you can look at things closer, you can look at things further away, you can reframe it, you can change the colour. And I think that is just as applicable to us as, as grown-ups um, and even more so if you work in a world where you feel like you're seeing the same thing day in, day out or you feel like there isn't a lot of, you know, creativity or visual storytelling in your day to day is 
again, coming back to this idea of, okay, where can you notice this? You know, how can you look at this differently? You know, do you, when you're on a 15 minute break, can you go for a walk down the street you've never walked down before? Can you put your camera into macro mode and shoot the little weeds that are coming up through the pavement? Or can you put it into ultra wide mode and point it up at the sky and look at the shapes that the buildings make at the, in the sky? And I, I think if you look to do it in your work, I think you will struggle. If you look to do it in your life, it will naturally start happening in your work. It'll, you know, you'll naturally find ways to bring it in. And I think a good buddy of mine is a doctor and she took up photography on the side you know, as a, as a visual release, as a creative outlet um, and, and got so much for the experience. And I think it became like this, you know, like this river that flowed back and forth and enriched her work life and made it her look at her work life through new lens. But also her work life helped her truly appreciate the beauty of something like just, you know, walking down the road at the end of a long day and, and looking at the sun setting and, and seeing how golden hour was affecting the street that she might have walked down a thousand times before. And I think it all comes back to noticing because it is already there. You know, I hate the idea of feeling like you need to go and spend a fortune on a creative retreat or that you need to, you know, not be at your job or get out of this space. I think you can find creativity and meaning and fun. Kind of moving on to slightly heavier topics, but nonetheless, really, really critical. There's a few causes that lie very, very close to your heart. Feminism, supporting local business, uplifting and exposing the work of local designers and talent, remote work. I see a golden thread running through each of those issues. And for me, that golden thread is work, which is, again, why you're so applicable to this audience and to our podcast. Talk to us about why these are hot buttons for you. Those are all things um, I'm very passionate about. And I'm, part of it is that I'm very lucky to live in a part of the world with a wealth of local knowledge and a thriving, beautiful craft scene. And I get to see people who have, you know, made it their life and, and get to see this sort of, you know, I guess, alternative way way of living. So I, I feel to me it's only natural that I would look to, you know, ways of documenting and, and promoting and supporting that. Remote work and feminism in particular for me have the potential to make magic, you know, for, for too long, you know, mothers specifically have been forced to to juggle and to try and find different ways of working. And I think it's become clear that this whole time that they've been ahead of the curve, you know, and that the hunger for a more flexible approach to work is continuing to grow. And, and hopefully we'll see more and more situations where, for example, both parents are taking responsibility for the child rearing and both of them are integrating family life into their work life and family and personal life feels more like it's living more holistically alongside work life. And I do think that they are all really, really connected, actually, and they, they seem kind of disparate topics. But actually, I do think, you know, if you look at sort of independent businesses, that often means that that person is able to make their own hours and to have their work life and their home life sort of be more in tune with each other. And that that's something we could strive for at all levels, you know, not just at the smaller independent level. Natalie, I've got just one question left and you started to go there. We're talking about remote work and I just maybe there might be a couple of things you can add. But back in 2017, Obviously, pre-COVID, you wrote quite a comprehensive article for Increment where you took three different people from different parts of the world and you sort of documented how they structured their work week working remotely. So this was four years ago. 
the data that you showed there, how different is that looking today? It's funny, many of the challenges of remote work that the people I interviewed, um, what they outlined, they're still very, very relevant today. You know, things like tackling isolation, establishing good remote work processes and habits, helping people master remote work tools. You know, so many companies during COVID were stuck trying to, you know, trying to build the remote work boat as they were sailing it, you know. So a lot of places are still playing catch up. And I think a lot of the the challenges that the people I interviewed outlined are still very much challenges today. And we're kind of still just sort of catching our breath and going, right, OK, this is this is here to stay. Um, I think one thing that the article didn't get to really explore and that has become clear, I think the BBC did um did a survey was that remote work in the way we had to do it in response to the pandemic definitely affected mothers, um, you know, the hardest. They were one of the hardest hits and they were ones that took the brunt of of being flexible, of working in common spaces, of, you know, not having the, the, the time and freedom to do that deep work. Um, and, and that's definitely something that I feel has probably worsened rather than improved. At the very least, now you definitely feel there's more of an openness. And I remember when I wrote that article and, you know, having some drinks with some friends and talking talking about remote work and, you know, even when I was working with Claire talking about remote work and so many of my friends saying, oh God, that sounds great. It wouldn't work in my industry. It wouldn't work in my industry. I don't think we could make it happen. And, you know, as we saw so many industries who thought it was impossible realised, oh, wow, there is a way for this to work, even if not to the full extent of being 100% remote. There is a way to be more flexible. There is a way to allow people to work from home at least some of the time in almost every single business. And that, I think, is one of the few silver linings that we have seen when it comes to to remote work over the past, you know, 18 months or so. Natalie, and that actually does bring us full circle. And this is also why I chose to keep this as our very last question for you is exactly because of what you've just highlighted. Um, The last two years have very clearly shown us that mothers um, have been the most impacted by the pandemic and there's a lot of really hard, deep work that needs to be done from a company perspective, from, you know, the freelancing side of things, everything related to work in terms of how motherhood, but also expanding that out, as you say, to fathers as well, is this, this juggle between parenting and work and really making that work is there's still a lot of growth that needs to happen in that area. Tell us a little bit about the newsletter that you've recently started called the Motherhood Sessions and why you care about this topic. Like so many of my projects, it started because it was something I wanted to see in the world and something I couldn't find. Like conversations about how motherhood affects your work and your creativity in so many different ways, I think are so important to have and they're just there just weren't enough of them out there. And, you know, from the very real changes that your brain undergoes to societal expectations, to how the world of work so often doesn't do enough to support families and mothers and how your own personal outlook and priorities can change. Like so many of those things were things that I started becoming more and more curious about. And I realised that like so many big life experiences, motherhood is one of those things that you don't necessarily read things that resonate with you before you have gone through it. So I realised when I was thinking about this and talking about it, that there's actually, there is a treasure trove of articles, stories, blog posts, photography projects, exploring this space, this sort of motherhood and I'd say creative work, but I, I think it really applies to all kinds of work. And I've just loved 
digging out these gems and sharing them with subscribers and having, you know, it's one of the projects I feel I'm proudest of, mainly because of the number of emails I get back talking about, wow, that really resonated with me. And most of the time, just sort of to to give a little bit of context or explain the newsletter um, isn't my personal musings. It's, you know, a short introduction and then I'm sharing some really interesting articles um, that explore motherhood, creativity and work in different ways. And some of the articles might be 11 years old. Some of them might be brand new data um, that has come up about like, you know, brain changes in the postpartum period. Um, and just getting those emails back is just so gratifying, just hearing from other parents who who are going through the same thing and who this has really resonated with. Um, it's just something I'm just immensely proud of. Exactly. Thank you so much. Like, I just, I know that our audience is, is really going to get a lot out of this. And thank you for just bringing yourself to the conversation and sharing so much with us. Oh, I mean, it was an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Natalie. Great insights from an individual who has obviously used her passion and uniqueness to take advantage of her work environment. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, we would appreciate that you follow us on your preferred platform and share with your friends and colleagues. Just a reminder for more information about Wanda and their new product pattern, you can visit their website. That's wndyr.com. And so from me, Doug Folks and Chaos and Rocket Fuel, stay safe and we'll see you soon.